Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College, covering the intersection of strategy, security, and warfare. Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors. Today we're discussing developments in Russia. I'm your guest host, Bill Morgan, course director for the Diplomacy and Statecraft course at McWar. Our guest today is Dr. Eugene Rumer of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Dr. Rumer is a senior fellow and the director of Carnegie's Russia and Eurasia program. He studied at Boston University, did his master's at Georgetown, and took his Ph.D. at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Prior to joining Carnegie, Dr. Rumer was the National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the U.S. National Intelligence Council from 2010 to 2014. Earlier, he held research appointments at the National Defense University, the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and the RAND Corporation. He has also served on the National Security Council staff and at the State Department, taught at Georgetown University and the George Washington University, and published widely. He spoke to our McWar students this morning about Putin and Russian internal politics and trends. Dr. Rumer, thanks very much for coming on the show. Well, thank you uh, for having me here. I'm delighted to be here. It's become uh, a good tradition. I look forward every year to coming back to the War College here and uh, engaging with your students. Thank you. I think it, you said five years. I think this is six or seven, so we really appreciate you know, every year you're coming down here to educate our students. Uh, before we start a discussion of developments in Russia, can you tell us a little about your specific research interests uh, at the moment? Well, one of the projects that I'm working on right now is an attempt to rethink, uh, reconceptualize, if you want to use a big word, uh, our approach to Russia. If you look at the record of the past 30 years or so, you have several Republican and Democratic administrations struggling with a way to build a sustainable, productive relationship with Russia. And every time a new administration comes in, it finds the relationship in a worse shape than uh, its predecessors inherited from their predecessors. So uh, we're looking at what we call, my colleague and I, that is, we're looking for a uh, a new approach, or maybe call it the old approach, returning to some of the basics and uh, what we call a realist approach to Russia from the realist school, uh, perhaps doing away with some of our hopes and expectations for what Russia would become and uh, taking a hard look at what we're prepared to invest in that relationship and what we want from it. Okay. That sounds like that one's coming to conclusion. Probably we'll see it before too long. Uh, yes, you will. Uh, we're in the final stages of drafting it, and I expect that sometime in June, July, it will appear on the Carnegie website. Okay, great. Um, in February of this year, you co-authored with Julia Gorganas a fascinating paper called Russia's Global Ambitions in Perspective, which can be found on the Carnegie website. You explored, a, a, as, as I saw it, a key question, which whether the return of Russia as a significant global actor is a new phenomenon. My takeaway was that your answer, your basic answer was no. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yes, of course. Um, well, uh, you know, one of the things that we're finding out as we study new Russia is 
you know, how important history is and how there's really nothing new under the sun. The older we get, probably the more we realize that. But um, one of the things that we try to explore, Julia and I, that is, we, we looked at the record of Russia during the Soviet period. And uh, one of the discoveries, surprise, surprise, is that a lot of the ambitions, a lot of the relationships that Russia is pursuing under Vladimir Putin really are not that new, but a return to uh, Russian uh, foreign policy, Soviet foreign policy of uh, the 1950s and 60s and 70s, and many tools and a toolkit that the Russian state employs today, ranging from information and disinformation to actual assassinations, is something that the Soviet state employed in its very ambitious foreign policy. And Russia, you know, big as it is historically, has bigger ambitions even exceeding its vast borders. So uh, I think this phenomenon of Russia being bigger than just its geographic footprint on the map, uh, that's something for us to think about and uh, figure out how to deal with. Let me read a short quote from the paper, which really caught my eye. Uh, Quote, Economic difficulties have not put a break on Russian activism abroad. To the contrary, the Kremlin's ability to withstand both domestic economic difficulties and Western sanctions without changing course is a sign of Moscow's commitment to an activist foreign policy as a long-term choice of the country's leadership, end quote. Do the U.S. and its allies overestimate the power of sanctions and other punitive economic measures to alter Russian behavior? I think yes. We impose this, we and our allies, I should say, imposed a series of severe sanctions on the Russian economy in the aftermath of the illegal annexation of Crimea in 2014 and the shutdown of the Malaysian airliner over Ukraine by Russian affiliated separatist. Uh, rebels. Uh, Yet, uh, since 2014, we have seen a much more ambitious and expansive Russian foreign policy. Suffice it to say that Russia intervened militarily in Syria and changed the course of that war significantly, saved the client regime. So, um, sanctions clearly are not enough, and we really are struggling uh, to figure out a way how we can contain Russia and what other tools we can put to work in our effort to contain its global ambitions uh, and activities. Uh, Later this month, uh, McWhorter students will travel to Norway, Germany, and Romania as the capstone of our uh, diplomacy and statecraft curriculum. For a seminar on EU economic issues, uh, they read that the U.S. government opposes the German approval of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline project, which, if completed, would bring natural gas from Russia to Germany via a second pipeline under the Baltic Sea. The the, uh, Trump administration believes that Nord Stream 2 would increase Russian political leverage over Europe, especially in crisis situations. You've written about this issue. What's your view? I disagree with the idea that Europe will become more dependent on Russian gas. I mean, first of all, it's already significantly dependent. But if you look at the record of the past 25 years or so, Europe's dependence on Russian gas actually has been decreasing 
as a share of Russian gas in Europe's uh, consumption. There are other sources of gas coming online. Uh, as technology improves and costs come down, LNG is becoming a much more significant player in the global gas market. And I would say that this dependence or dependency that uh, the Trump administration talks about uh, as the reason for objecting to the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, that's a two-way thing. As the sources of supply to Europe multiply, it will be Russia that will be more dependent on European gas consumers rather than the other way around. Hmm. Uh, in your paper with Ms. Gurganis, I was struck by what you called the, quote, the troika of Russian foreign policy, end quote. Would you summarize the troika? Well, the troika is uh, really the three enduring factors that have driven Russian foreign policy, animated Russian foreign policy, over not just years or decades, but centuries. One has been this desire for strategic depth. Today, the border of Russia is about 300 miles from Moscow. That used to be central Soviet Union. Russia does not have the buffer of the outer empire, which was the Warsaw Pact, and the empire that was the Belarus and Ukraine. So this sense of physical almost vulnerability to what they perceive to be sources of hostile pressures from the West is something that has animated Russian foreign policy for many, many years. And then the absence of natural barriers, major bodies of water or mountains, um, they, they, they have been for centuries bumping up against other powerful states in Europe. And that takes me to the next point, and that's the difficult relationship that they've always had with the West. Precisely as a result of uh, this lack of physical separation and the desire to enhance Russian security at the expense of smaller neighbors, so they kept bumping into Western countries. And of course, they've sought recognition by the West of what they consider to be their legitimate security environment uh, requirements. It's interesting, Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov uh, wrote an article in 2016 in a leading Russian foreign policy journal in which he said, and I think it reflects some of the current thinking about their difficult relationship with the West. He wrote that the West has always tried to get control of the Russian soul you know, the Mongol invasion was not as intrusive as he claimed because the Mongols were content to just receive taxes from Russian princes and never really wanted to convert Russia into their faith. The West has always been more intrusive. And I think there is something to it. Their relationship with the West has been difficult because of different values, because it's always required a certain amount of adjustment on the part of Russia that Russia has not been willing to undertake. You know, in, um, earlier in the year, our students uh, studied a bit of uh, George Kennan, read the long telegram, and so on. And um, Am I right when I read this paper that you wrote with Ms. Urganis that George Kennan would read it and nod his head, that he would find a lot in there that he's very comfortable with, the, the basic long-term Russianness um, of Soviet behavior? Yes, I think... Um 
you know, it's always been a very difficult question to answer whether Soviet behavior is guided by great power ambitions or an exceedingly aggressive ideology. And the answer is probably both to a degree. But I consider myself, like many others in the field, a student of Kennan's. And certainly I'm influenced by his writings, and I think that we really should be looking at Russian history. You know, 1991 was not the end of history. So uh, it, it, it weighs heavily on Russian thinking, on their relationships with other major powers, and with their neighbors. Ukraine, most importantly, probably, uh, these days. Um, one follow-up I had was, was what, is there anything about Kennan's analysis that doesn't pertain to Russia in the 21st century? Or maybe just what's different about Russia today compared to the Soviet Union and the way it was run. You mentioned modern Russia is not exactly the same as what came before. Even if there's uh, a Russianness which underlays everything, it's not just simply a clone. Well, I think in Kennan's day, Russian society, Soviet society, was a lot more closed. He writes in his memoirs about his loneliness. Uh, he was someone who really wanted to be connected to Russian culture, and he found himself isolated in the late Stalin period in his brief time in Russia as the ambassador. So I think Russia is a much more open place. Uh, Russian internet is a lively, thriving, in a way, in, in some, some, sometimes in good and sometimes in bad ways, like you know, like any medium in, of, of, of that scale. Um, and, and I think it's significant in that Russians are open these days to a multitude of views, which is not to say that they're becoming like us. They maintain their Russianness and their history, culture, traditions, all that carries through. But I think it's a very different country in many, many ways. Uh, last week, here at McWar in a seminar on NATO, and, uh, the speaker presented a little chart and he, where he said that the combined GMP of the U.S., Canada, and the European members of NATO is roughly $40 trillion, more than 20 times Russia's GNP. Um, a believer in the international relations theory of realism might well argue that knowing this gross imbalance in economic strength Russia would never risk a lengthy total war with NATO that it would surely lose. Yet worries persist in NATO slowly beefing up forces in Russia and urging NATO members to increase defense budgets to 2% of GMP, as you well know, and tackling infrastructure issues such as strengthening rail networks, roads and bridges that would aid troops in moving to the front lines. Um, do you believe that there is a significant danger of miscalculation on Russia's part that could lead to either a large-scale war or perhaps more likely some sort of localized conflict in the Baltics, for example? And um, I do have a follow-up on that. I'd like to think about what we might do. If there is a significant danger of miscalculation, do you think there is? I think we're dealing with a situation in which 1% 
chance of miscalculation is significant, considering mm. the stakes on both sides. So the simple answer is yes. Um, and I think there is uh, ample opportunity for unintended escalation. When Russian pilots fly next to our pilots with, what, 10, 15 feet separating them, we're relying on the skills of young, hot, uh, hot Russian shots. pilot hotshots, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, who uh, uh, may not intend to bump into each other, but uh, this is a very dangerous, potentially dangerous situation in which our forces operate in such close proximity. We have apparently good experience, knock on wood, of deconflicting our operations over Syria. I would think that that experience of military-to-military communications and establishing permanent operating channels of this kind should be applied to other theaters where the risk of escalation is not smaller but probably greater. Is there also a danger that on the West side or NATO side there could be a miscalculation uh, about areas where the West might think that it would push into. You mentioned earlier in class today this, the near abroad or the, uh, what was it, the region? The sphere of privileged interest, yeah, as they would, de describe the territories of the former Soviet Union. That's a phrase that belongs to then president of Russia, Dmitry Medvedev, that he used in an interview in the wake of the war with Georgia in 2008. But they see that sphere of privilege interest as their security build. It's the countries of the former Soviet Union, Ukraine, Belarus, uh, Georgia, uh, uh, and um, they've drawn effectively a red line around it. And they've gone to war twice to enforce that red line as they saw it against NATO in Involvement there. This was not an intrusion, but in 2008, the United States and its European allies promised to admit Ukraine and Georgia eventually, and the Russians very clearly acted on that and provoked a war with Georgia, and then in 2014 intervened in Ukraine to show that this is not going to be tolerated. So that's part of their desire for depth to protect themselves against, as they see it, malign influence on their border. Um, and yes, I think there is potential for miscalculation there too, although I think after the two wars in 2008 and, 2000, 2008 and 2014, NATO countries are much more careful about what they do in those countries. Uh, if or when, if there was a circumstance where President Putin was considering a military response, who would be in the room with him when he would be considering that? Who would be advising him? In fairness, our ability to see inside the Kremlin <laughs> is quite limited. <laughs> but I think we can look at publicly available information and see that regularly Putin holds meetings of his Security Council 
which includes representatives from the military, his security services, senior most political figures in a country. So I think this would be his modern-day Politburo, people he would bring in for advice and consent, so to speak. Uh, I would think also the chief of the general staff would play a very important role because clearly the military feels more important today than they did before the Syrian operation, for example, and their ability to execute the campaign plan is something that is essential to Putin's decision-making. Um, in a recent New York Times article uh, that I read, the March 23rd, 2019, um, Andrew Higgins quoted uh, Ms. Shulman, Dr. Shulman of political science in Moscow as saying, Putin's grip on Russia has been vastly exaggerated by both supporters and opponents. Shulman told Higgins that, quote, this is not a personally run empire, but a huge and difficult to manage bureaucratic machine with its own internal rules and principles. It happens time and again, the president says something and then Nothing happens or the opposite happens, end quote. What's your view of Putin's power, and what is it maybe that Americans misunderstand about him and the way he runs Russia? That's a huge question. I think that probably if we had better insights into the way Stalin ran the Soviet Union, we would say that he is not the absolute ruler and that in a country of at the time, 200 plus million people and spread across, I think at the time it was 11 time zones. Nobody, not even Stalin, can control everything that happens there. Today, probably Putin is not, certainly Putin is not the absolute ruler of Russia in a sense that he controls everything. A lot of things happen without his knowledge or his control. And oftentimes, I'm sure he's frustrated because the bureaucracy is not delivering, just as probably Stalin was frustrated that the bureaucracy was not delivering on time and on target. However, uh, I think he is the most important political figure on the Russian political stage by far. He succeeded at eliminating all other sources of political power. And he acts as the critical moderator, manager of very complex relationships among various factions, various security services, various economic industrial interests, regional interests. Does he control everything? Again, no. But he is uniquely influential in that system. Good way to, uniquely influential. Um, are we in the Russians sort of doomed to an up and down, rocky relationship? I mean, are U.S.-Russian relations kind of always going to be a problem that we just have to manage rather than a problem that we can solve? I think managing is a very good term in relation to our Russia policy. As we just discussed, 
Russia is not just a regional small country. It's big. It touches on a wide range of global and regional interests. And it's, even in the best of circumstances, only natural for two countries of that size, scale of their ambitions, and even economic and geopolitical footprint, despite Russia's diminished stature. It's only natural for them to absolutely manage their relations. It's not a fire and forget situation where you can agree on something and that's fine, forget about it. So I think one of the things that we have underestimated over the years is the degree to which that relationship needed to be managed and managed at the senior most levels of our government because that's where you connect to the Russian government with so much power being concentrated at the top of the Russian government. Uh, with increased concern about great power competition with China and Russia, uh, some now argue that, quote, there ought to be more war in the war colleges, end quote. Uh, they urge that war colleges should focus on maneuver warfare, operational art, campaigning, and topics like that. Now, of course, war colleges already properly focus on those topics, both in seminars uh, and in field studies and in war games. But the idea is to do a lot more of it by creating curriculum time, by cutting things like area studies, country expertise, diplomacy, and other non-kinetic subjects. But to manage global rivalry with Russia, what skills do you think our policy specialists, top military leaders, diplomats, and intelligence analysts, which is what we hope our students will become, what skills do you think they need to have to manage that rivalry with Russia? Well, I, of course, am biased uh, since I come from the field of regional studies, area studies. And I would say that it would be a mistake to cut regional studies, area studies curriculum from uh, war colleges. I think war colleges need to do both. Uh, and I think that it is absolutely essential for our future leaders to have deeper appreciation of foreign cultures, history, and the extent to which history is important to many of these foreign cultures. Languages, I think in-country experience is invaluable. I think the fact that war colleges traditionally bring foreign students to attend their courses is a very valuable addition to the overall, not necessarily classroom, but educational experience. I think foreign travel is extremely important. Hearing it not just from the way the likes of myself talk about Russia, talk about various regional crises, but how that's perceived there on the ground. I don't think you can put a price on it. I think it's essential. Got it. If people wanted to learn more about developments in Russia and the many aspects of the U.S.-Russian relationship, where can they look? Again, I'm partial 
So I would direct uh, people to the Carnegie Endowment website. We also have a very active presence, surprisingly, but still in Moscow, where our Carnegie Moscow office is staffed by Russian scholars. There are no Americans working there. And they produce volumes of material, mostly in Russian, but I should say that we translate a lot of their best publications into English, so that's accessible to a much wider audience and it's free of charge. And again, I would go to history and culture and books about modern-day Russia, but not just about modern-day Russia, but also Russian history. Again, it's something that I am stuck on these days and, uh, and try to re-educate myself on. Actually, that leads me into my last question here. What are you reading right now that our students should know about? And it doesn't have to be anything related to Russia. Well, I was rereading Henry Kissinger's memoirs, which oh. I think is an important uh, kind of reflection of uh, another difficult time in our nation's history, early 1970s. Uh, there's a number of books about European history uh, that I think are worth looking at something I've been rereading. Uh, there's a book by a British author whose name I don't recall, but it's called The Vanquished, about Europe after the end of World War I. I think 19th century Europe is a fascinating place, and uh, I think it's the, called Pursuit of Power, uh, by a British historian, Richard or Robert Evans, don't hold me to it. Uh, but um, I, I think these kinds of big, sweeping histories are, th are very important for uh, modern-day scholars like myself uh, and our future leaders. They're worth reading and rereading. And interesting to read, uh, too. Yeah, and a lot of them are really just a fascinating read. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. And Dr. Rumer, Rumer, thank you so much for coming on the show and for coming down every year to speak to our McWar students. We really appreciate it. To keep up uh, with the good work of the Marine Corps War College, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. At uh, Special thanks to our intrepid producer, Lieutenant Colonel Jason Palma, who will clean up the tape today and get my stumbles out of it. I'm your guest host, Bill Morgan. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded, innovative podcast of the Marine Corps War College. This concludes the EGA podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Defense. You can follow the Marine Corps War College on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at McWar College. And as always, our podcast music is Stuck in Traffic by Romero. Have a great day.